Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, December 8th, 2011, and our special guest is Lisa Nielsen, the innovative educator. How are you, Lisa? I'm great. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for being here tonight. I know that Christmas is, well, December is a stressful season, and uh, we appreciate your taking the time. We know those of you who are attending are taking time away from other things as well. Future of Education is sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs project and by Blackboard Collaborate. Coming up on the Future of Education next uh, Tuesday, David Maxfield, one of the co-authors of Influencer, Crucial Conversations, and Change Anything is going to talk about education. Lisa, if you'd turn your mic off while you're typing, that would be great because we're hearing in the background. On Wednesday is the EduBlog Awards show, which should be a blast. I believe that that's at 7 p.m. Eastern. I don't think an official link has been given out yet, but edublogawards.com. Uh, on Thursday, Blue Valley School is going to have students present on their CAPS program. Uh, Lisa would love this program. These are students who are doing uh, internships in school and um, obviously quite capable. Scott McLeod comes on at the beginning of January, Ian Jukes, Mitch Perlstein on his fascinating book about the elephant in the room, the impact of family on education, Sean Nussbaum Beach on her Connected Educator book, Henry Iring on the Innovative University, uh, Cable Green is new up there, that's lots of fun, David Lurcher, uh, Lisa's going to be on this panel on personal learning profiles, which should be a lot of fun. Um, and then let's see, Jane Hart is new. She's going to talk about social learning. I'm actually thinking of calling that social learning 2.0 because the original social learning, uh, which I've been reading about recently, uh, really doesn't address peer-to-peer -peer learning. It was more sort of modeling after the teacher. So interesting to see the distinction there. Uh, Ruth Swell Swelly on the OpenSource.com project. Kathy Davidson on her book. Alec Koros on social learning as well. Anyway, lots of fun coming up and more fun announcements to make in January. If you've missed the show, uh, we had Malia Dicker on Tuesday night who did this project called Reschool Yourself. Really fun to learn about. She went back to school starting in kindergarten a week at a time, went through every grade, kind of to uh, kind of, uh, uh, process what had happened to her in school and start her, her life over a little bit. Uh, really an interesting story. Tasha Bergson Michelson on search literacy. Tasha from Google and um, her small panel there. Uh, anyway, with Debbie and Jolie. Scott Nine from uh, IDEA and all the Global Education Conference and Library 2.0 stuff. Um, anyway. Well, they're all up at futureofeducation.com in full Illuminate version and in uh, MP3 form. So this is your chance to tell us where you're participating from. Look to the left of the whiteboard. You're looking for the second icon down the star. You have to click it twice. And you click on the map, and you can give a shout out. Yes, Peggy, the iTunes subscription is a nightmare right now. And it's because of FeedBurner. And Google bought FeedBurner, and they don't have any technical support. And um, FeedBurner did not send out confirmation emails with your uh, account information. And if you don't know the original account name, Google won't help you find it. And it's lost in Never Neverland because Delicious changed some of their formatting. And I don't know what to do. <sighs> Ugh. Uh, Peggy says, I'm listening to my iPod look for EdTech Live podcast. Really, I'm still getting my download. Oh, good. I hope you are. 
So, I don't know who's out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean there. I'm wondering where you are. Someone out in the Pacific as well. But sure glad to have you here. Really fun. Always love it when we have a little bit of a diverse audience. And again, we know this is a really busy time. So thanks for taking the time. Lisa, we typically don't get the same kind of an audience at this time of year, but people do listen to the recordings, and I'm really delighted that you're on. Thomas from Guam, thanks for being here. Okay, so moving right along. So Lisa, I have uh, sort of organized my questions for you into two categories. Okay. One is out of the box, and the other is really out of the box. Okay. <laughs> and let's have you turn your mic down just a bit. I think it's a little bit loud for me. I don't know if anybody else is experiencing that. But um, and then if if you would, probably a good way would be when you finish answering a question, turn your mic off, and then I'll know you're done. Okay. So in terms of okay, uh, just kind of out of the box, um, to the degree that you are able, tell us a little bit about your actual work situation and uh, how you balance that with the kinds of activities and writings that you do. Sure. Um, so I work for the New York City Department of Education. The uh, conversations that I have outside of my workday, though, are not a representation of my employer. So I do like to make that pretty clear. And in fact, much of what I am currently doing is uh, goes basically in the in direct opposition of the direction of my employer. So that's why I think it's really important to state that up front. Um, as far as I guess one of the main ways that is the case is when we talk about out-of-the-box thinking and what I like to call thinking outside the ban. And where I work, um, student-owned digital devices are banned and confiscated using metal detectors and put in bins along with guns and knives. And of course, I recently wrote a book with my co-author, Woolen Webb, and in the book, uh, we talk about how to embrace the use of student-owned devices for learning. Um, we have a whole chapter and appendix devoted to breaking the ban where you work. This is not something that I've personally been successful with at this point, but it is something that I do hope to accomplish at some point in my local location. Um, but I have worked with other teachers across the globe to help them break the ban where they work. And I actually have seen some change in thinking um, toward breaking the ban where I work as well. And I think that is really important because students should have the freedom to learn with the tools that they own. And if we're not helping them learn with the tools that they own in the world, then we're not really preparing them for the world. So as far as the second part of your question, how do I balance that? Um, as you may have noticed, and people who follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus, or whatnot may have noticed, I uh, often do work in the middle of the night while people are sleeping. Um, I have some of my best writing that occurs at, say, 3 to 5 o'clock in the morning. And I never really have a moment that is idle, whether I'm writing the subway, I'm usually writing a blog post on my BlackBerry, and I have the ability to type without looking, so I'm even walking around the streets of Manhattan um, tweeting and 
blogging, et cetera. So that's one of the ways I balance it all, I guess. So uh, uh, you do tell the story in Teaching Generation Text of um, the, the ban on administrative text and how you overcame that. But I would still put Teaching Generation Text within the context of out of the box, but not really out of the box, because it's within the context of traditional structures of, of uh, education and how to work with them to accomplish this goal, right? Yeah. It's it's slightly out of the box, although I have to say, um, in where I teach, it's considered pretty out of the box and radical to support the use of cell phones and other student-owned devices for learning, even though, especially, I started writing that book two years ago, especially then, and as I said, I've seen things move a little bit in the other direction, but that to me doesn't seem like a very radical idea, but to some people it absolutely does, but as you are aware, I certainly have much more out-of-the-box ideas for transforming learning. So I'm going to, uh, so in our category of out of the box would be your white paper, Fix the School, Not the Child, would be the book, Teaching Generation Text. But for me, really out of the box is The Teenager's Guide to Opting Out, Not Dropping Out of Outdated and Traditional School, and The Working Home Educator's Guide to Success. So it feels like those kind of sit in, in they, there's a theme that runs through them, but they definitely sit in different boxes, or they're outside of different boxes. Yeah, absolutely. So this is um, an area that's really dear to me because when we look at places like where I teach in New York City and other cities like it, and even if you just, if I look at the different places I've lived, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and New York City, we have a dropout rate of 50% in all of those places. And even as I talk to kids who are in schools today, I find that even though they are in school, even the kids who are doing very successful find what they're learning is boring and irrelevant. In my um, team guide for opting out of school, I feature a young girl who was at the top of her class but felt like school was not helping her really prepare for the world, and I show her plan for personal success. And basically, for many uh, teenagers, they feel like school is leaving them behind, and so that guide was written for kids to take ownership of their learning. And what people don't know, both teenagers, young people, and their parents, is that you don't need to go to high school to get into a great Ivy League college. You don't need to go to high school to have an amazing career. And all this, what I call test prep mania, is completely irrelevant. You can skip the whole thing and move directly onto a path for success. And that's a big message that I'm trying to instill in students directly as well as their parents. And I, I even know people that tell me about their children who they're drugging because they quote unquote have ADD, ADHD. And it's really interesting because I feature on my blog many studies where these students no longer need to be drugged when they're taking out of the school setting. So I did write a post a couple months ago that if school was the cause of your child's ADD, would you remove them? And in every case, I haven't heard of any cases of parents who've removed their children from the school setting 
um, because they're having problems with ADD, ADHD, and put them in alternative settings, whether it's an alternative school environment or it's an unschool environment or a home education environment. And within, say, about six months to a year, many of those symptoms disappear or are much more reduced and the medication is not necessary. There's so, some yeah. really there's some really deep thinking discussion that could happen around that. Let's start with uh, Fix the School, Not the Child, the white paper, um, because you begin that by talking about a conversation you had with a teacher uh, about what was happening in her class and why that was going to stop for the rest of the year. Would you tell that briefly? Now, I wrote that guide about a year ago. I need you to refresh my memory. <laughs> okay. On so it was, a really, it was a really engaged classroom environment, and you were complimenting her, and she said yes, but as soon as we start the uh, test prep yeah. in the rest of the year, it's gone. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, I've written about her a few times, actually. And it was a school that I work with, and I was really excited about the work that we were doing. One of the things... I actually wrote a post on Facebook today that featured one of the schools that I used to work with that is why I got into this profession. They were all focused and centered around passion-driven learning, the school-wide enrichment model, um, helping, schools get in, or helping students discover their talents, passions, and interests, develop those, um, develop personal learning networks, and make meaningful uh, work that matters in the world. And so that's some of the work that I have been trying to do in the grant that I run where I work. And we have these great things called innovation field trips, and you can see them all for free online at a site called innovationfieldtrips.org. And basically, those trips give teachers an opportunity to showcase the innovative practices that they've been implementing with the help of me and my staff through the grant. So we went and we visited this teacher, and she's just doing all these great things using technology, 21st century tools. The kids are so passionate about their work. They have picked their own projects. They're working individually, pairs or small groups, creating products that they choose in the with the people that they choose. And it was one of those days where I expected to be leaving the school on a high. And I ran into her. Um, as I was leaving the school, I was stopping to use the ladies' room, and I told her how excited I was about her work, and she said, I'm not excited because after we come back from midwinter recess, which is in February, we won't see any of this anymore because from then on, it's test prep only. And I said, you know what? You're doing great work. You know this is great for the kids. They're so excited. Just close your door, engage in subversive teaching, and keep doing what you're doing. And she said, we can't because they do drive-by test prep collection. And if we have not uh, forced all of these tests on our students, we will get written up and we will be in jeopardy of losing our jobs. And this has just become incredibly pervasive now. And even in this, the final year of my grant, um, we've noticed that the teachers just don't have any time for students to engage in real authentic work and innovation and passion-driven learning because they are all 100% judged on these high-stakes tasks. So I'm going to push back on you on, on something here, and I'm, I'm doing I, it's in fun, but I want to give you the chance to kind of respond because uh, you have 20 ideas in Fix the School, Not the Child. And as I read through them, you know, I'm kind of internally clapping, loving them. And then I thought, 
okay, maybe about 1% of the parents would actually be willing to do this. And my guess is that most of them would have an experience that would lead them to actually pulling their student out of school. So you're calling this fix the school, but does this, can this, are there enough people who can actually do this? And, and will they actually get enough success to stay in the school? Or are they just going to say, I've got to go. In order to do these things, I've got to leave. Well, yeah, that's a smart question because that's why the next guide was written. <laughs> because I wrote these 20 ideas. And really, that book or guide came out of um, after seeing the movie Race to Nowhere which featured all of these kids who were really like guinea pigs running to try to meet success. And it was dedicated to a young girl who committed suicide um, based on the pressures of school. And these kids who were in AP classes knew that this just wasn't possible to do what they were asking. And educators knew that kids were unnecessarily taking drugs to stay awake and be able to keep up and whatnot. And when I saw that, I was so frustrated because one of the only solutions they came up with was don't pressure your kids about homework and don't make grades seem so important. So I wrote this guide. Um, I really just meant to write a short article, but it features 20 things that you can do when school is hurting your children. Um, and I then started helping a lot of parents do some of those things, parents whose kids were getting um, sick and having a lot of issues because of school. And absolutely what you said was the case. The schools are pushing back. I watched some of these parents get bullied um, by the schools. Interestingly, when parents push back to stand up for the rights of their kids, I actually saw the parents get bullied by other parents as well um, who were just saying, you know, just do what they tell you to do. You need to follow the rules. And parents felt so disempowered to have a voice in their children's education. Um, and then not long after I wrote that, there was a story from Ron Clark who was basically telling parents, stay out. We're the experts. We know it's best for your children, not you. And that really outraged a lot of parents too. So once parents started doing some of these things that I suggested and standing up and advocating for what was best for their children, you're absolutely right. The next step uh, for many just became opting out of school. And that is why I wrote the guide <laughs> to opting out of school. Well, they're great ideas. I mean, I, I love them. You know, don't subject your children to standardized tests. And, and, and I think you're cribbing from John Taylor Gatto's uh, Bartleby Initiative, right? The, you know, uh, so tell your students to write on the test. But what's the phrase? Um, uh, I prefer not to take this test. <laughs> right. I prefer not to take this test. It comes from Bartleby the Scrivener, right? You know, I prefer not to do this work. But, um, you know, I thought, okay, that just takes an enormous amount of pushing against the sort of conformity that exists at schools. The very thing that makes, that seems to make, you know, a lot of this culture so uh, pervasive and so difficult. Um, but the, I loved all the ideas, but I really had a hard time imagining uh, people actually putting them into practice. Yeah, and that's the thing that's so upsetting, that parents have now completely lost agency over their own children, and students have lost the ability to advocate for themselves as well. So um, 
I'm actually involved in several groups for opting out of standardized testing, and it's different from uh, location to location. But basically what I hear the educators saying is, we know this isn't what's best for our children, um, for our students, but we have to follow orders or we'll get fired. And when we start to have a culture where employees are just following orders, even though they know it's hurting children, I believe that is very dangerous. And then they're forcing, in many cases, parents to subject their children to this, even if they have doctor's notes that tell them that their children will be harmed and ill. And now test scores and data have trumped doing what's best for children. And this is why I've become very disenchanted with being a part of such a system. So I was in the car with our 13-year-old daughter yesterday, and she was telling me about the homework project she has over the holiday break. And I said to her, oh, you're not going to do them. And she says, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I, uh, I'm going to go tell your teachers you're not going to be doing that work over the break. That's a break for us. And it, 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 the smile on her face was so huge. And I, I, I couldn't decide, was, she, was it a nervous, scared smile that I would actually go talk to her teachers? Or was she relieved that she could actually have a break? Uh, I mean, I am in the same camp as there's a growing number of educators who don't believe in homework. Um, one of my favorites to follow is Joe Bauer, um, and he also cites often Alfie Cohn, um, and he's a great one to follow as well. But time at home is time for kids to spend with their family, friends, and to follow their passions. It's not a time for school to be intruding into their life even further. So I, you know, um, there was a great interview on one of my favorite podcasts, which is The Unplugged Mom, and it's from a young man. He was an AP English student, and his school decided to take over part of his summer by giving them a bunch of inane uh, essays to write over the summer. And he wrote in one of his essays that he really had a problem with school intruding into his time in the summer. He got kicked out of AP English for speaking out against the system. And I think that in itself is also really scary. So you're absolutely right. Um, standing up for yourself can cause you to get kicked out of things, can cause you, the one of the parents I was just mentioning who had a doctor's now and her son was seriously ill because of the stress and uh, the pressures of taking the test, her son also got kicked out of school for the mother standing up and doing what's right for her child. So it, I'm not saying it's easy, but what I'm saying is if school is going to kick you out, bully you, harass you, remove you from honors programs for doing what's best for your children, then I think we seriously need to rethink uh, what the best way for our children to learn is. Very interesting. Okay, so I want to uh, dive a little bit deep here because uh, it feels as though if my parents had been having this conversation, they wouldn't have been having this conversation, which is you just do what the system asks. It was uh, very much kind of a sense that um, uh, there were that obedience was going to be sort of a lifetime activity, whether when you got out of school and went to your job. Um, at the same time, I also feel as though things have changed culturally in terms of expectations. So I'm not really quite sure where that falls. But as I look at the 
economic crisis right now. The, the question I have is, to what degree does that reflect this, uh, you know, the last 30 years of kind of this conformance culture? And to what degree does it open the door to change as we're seeing just the devastating consequences of institution, institutional thinking gone bad? Yeah, I think you're touching on a really important point. While it may have been good to, I mean, if you look at, and you're right, John Pilargato influences a lot of my thinking, as does some of these other educational pioneers, um, like Ivan Illich and John Holt and whatnot. But if you look, John Pilargato does really great work on the history of education, and education was begun by people who wanted a compliant workforce for an industrial age. And what we were doing in school, which was being, you know, training compliant workers who did what they were told, memorize, regurgitate, and not question authority, that made sense for an industrial model of, or say an industrial economy. Now we have all of these kids not only graduating high school and not only graduating college, and they come out at the other end, and now, as we know, they're occupying Wall Street and whatever else they're occupying, because there are not jobs for, I mean, there are some jobs for compliant workers who do what they're told in an assembly line, but not really. Those are closing down, and the type of careers that we need to prepare our students for are not the things that are done in school today. We need to be focusing on things like entrepreneurship. Um, we need to focus in early grades and, and definitely in high school on helping students find their passions, talents, interests, helping them engage in real-world apprenticeships, helping them, you know, I have been looking for so long to find any educator who is helping their students develop a real authentic digital footprint that will help them land a job. And I I'm not just talking about um, K to 12. Even in college, they are not helping students uh, be prepared for the careers that are available today. One thing that comes to mind with that just happened recently. I was talking to my cousin, who is an honors English uh, major at Vassar, and she's a senior this year, and she has not published a single thing in all of her years of college. She's an English writing major and has published zero in four years of college. I think this is a travesty. I think our kids need to be doing authentic work. And I think that the reason that they can't find jobs is that they're preparing students to become writers or scientists or mathematicians instead of having them actually do the work of writers, scientists, and mathematicians. We're infantilizing youth way beyond where it's necessary. And kids could be doing these things starting at the age, at very early ages, but definitely by the age of teenagers. And that could bring us into the next question if you'd like to go there. But when I study what home educators are doing with their kids, these kids are doing incredible things at very young ages. And kids in school should be doing incredible things as well. I don't know if you've read Robert Epstein's Team 2.0, but he certainly has a, a treasure trove of examples um, of, of people who at very early ages you know, accomplish significant things. And you, in fact, give a list uh, at, at one point in one of your white papers, as well as a list of those who opted out or didn't finish high school, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, well, I want to go to, to teaching generation text because I feel like it's out, it's still in this category of outside the box, but not really outside of the box. And I think and I really enjoyed the book, and I think people are going to find an enormous amount of value in it. I'm going to try and put up the Amazon page in here. Let's see how that comes up. It may be too busy, but just so people can see what the cover looks like. Um, I, I will say kind of candidly that my what used to be a phone and is now really a sort of a small computer in my hand um, has had dramatic has made dramatic changes in my own learning and clearly you're trying to help us bridge the period of time when we're trying to ban the devices to understanding their potential so how's that going so what I've done in this book um, and I continue to do on my blog and just in my work is connect with teachers who are actually doing this work and I can't tell you how it's going in the schools I work with directly day to day because it's banned in those schools. But what I do try to encourage teachers to do is, you know, I have a five-step plan for harnessing the power of cell phones that is shared in the book. And the first four steps um, help teachers embrace the use of cell phones for learning, even if they're banned, meaning that students can use them for homework um, and work outside of school, um, and they could model best practices for using these devices as learning tools. But even that, when I was teaching teachers how to harness the power of cell phones, um, they were afraid, and it's just so disturbing to me, they were afraid to even talk to their students about how cell phones could be used for learning devices. And I couldn't get anyone, it was just part of a class, how you can harness the power of your cell phone for learning. Um, I couldn't get anyone to facilitate that class. Everyone was afraid to do so. So there is a huge fear around the use of cell phones so, or, or student-owned devices. So even though it's not that out of the box in my mind in certain places like where I work, it's considered not only out of the box but like a very taboo topic. I've put up this fun slide that I often use to describe how uh, we've dreamt of these technologies for decades, and now that they're here, we're afraid of them. I mean, we, we sort of felt like they would radically change and improve our lives. And now that they're here, we're blaming them for everything. Um, one of the things that occurs to me is that this same issue of uh, creating an authentic online portfolio or personal web presence um, maybe doesn't happen sometimes because the the educators themselves haven't done that and not even really quite sure how to do that for themselves. So is the same thing true for using the handheld device as a, or the cell phone as a learning device that, that in fact the first step is to help them learn to use it themselves? Yeah, it's absolutely the case. Uh, both things that you said are true and I find it really disturbing when there are uh, educators who have no digital footprint whatsoever. Um, even sometimes educators who are in charge of helping integrate technology, and I'll look to find their digital footprint, and I find nothing. And then, just as you said, I mean, I've written about this uh, in my blog as well, but even those people who are charged for integrating technology, I've talked to technology directors, I've addressed groups of technology directors at keynotes and presentations that I've given at what and whatnot. And these people, not all of them, but there are people in leadership positions that are not harnessing the power of technology, who are not harnessing the power of basic social media tools. And 
they're not, you know, they're not leading us in real ways. They're not using these tools. They don't have their own online presence. So I think that has a lot to do with it. These things are often not valued by the leadership in charge of these sort of decisions in schools. Well, and the truth is change doesn't happen overnight. People have to figure things out. We go through cultural negotiations and dialogue as we kind of sort some of these things out. And it feels to me that it's inevitable that a device that's as powerful as the Dick Tracy watch or the Star Trek communicator will ultimately be used as a learning device. It's just the frustration of now, of, of how hard it is for some people to see that. Right, and so then that kind of brings up another uh, important thought that I have. And this comes from a young man that I met who I also wrote about in my blog named Travis Allen. He didn't know who I was. I actually met him at the ISTE conference when I when we were there together last summer. It was the last day of the conference. Travis Allen was there. And if people don't know who he is, he's the young man behind the iSchool initiative. And I'll say a little bit more about that. But what he said to me was that when he was a high school student, he felt like his teachers were keeping him as a prisoner of the past, not letting him use his digital devices for learning. And he was really frustrated. And he made a great video that you can Google called the iSchool Initiative. And it was created to show educators how students can use the digital devices they own. And he specifically had an iPhone that he had got for Christmas, so he featured that device for learning. And the teacher still didn't let him use his digital device, even though this was a smart student who was crying out to, for his teachers to get out of the way and let him engage in 21st century learning. And now he has a staff of over 25 students who are in the college that he attends, and they go around the globe informing educators how to use student-owned devices for learning. And I bring this up which touches on the next very important topic that I like talking about, which some people might think of as way out of the box. But I don't care if the adults are slow to get on board. They have no right to keep our students locked in the past. And I think that students need to have much, much, much more of a say in the rules that govern them. And fortunately, there are some students who uh, use social media to take a stand and have a say against the banning and blocking of their own student-owned devices. But I think it's unacceptable for adults to be making decisions about student learning without students being a part of that conversation. So that's my other out-of-the-box topic. Good. So uh, this slide is one of my favorites as well. This is the, uh, the tablet that was carried around the Star Trek ship. And, and this was actually used in, the, in a lawsuit uh, when Apple sued Samsung for what it claimed was a, a patent violation for creating a tablet. And they, they said, hey, this, this idea of a tablet's been around for 30 years. <laughs> so a question I have for you would be, uh, one of the things I hear quite frequently from my friends and from educators is that the cell phone and texting and social media are responsible for a significant degradation in writing skills of students. And I always hear this and, and kind of look at people and say, really? The educators don't have any responsibility for not teaching writing. The, the writing is poor because the students are using cell phones and social media. What's your reaction? So I hear that a lot as well. Um, 
we have a whole uh, portion of our book that focuses on the research around this. And I don't know, perhaps there's research that says something different, but there's also a lot of research out there that says that the more students communicate in any uh, medium, the better they will be at uh, communication, writing, expressing themselves, number one. And number two, it's absolutely an important thing for teachers. Like if people are complaining about how students are communicating, my question to them is, well, are you teaching them the proper way to text? And the proper way to text is with texting symbols. Do you even know the proper way to text? Are you teaching them appropriate language for emailing and social media and Twitter? And these are things that our teachers need to be fluent in. And Honestly, most teachers I have come in contact with in my real life setting are not fluent in all of these things. And they really need to be fluent in the use of social media, email, texting, and all of those things. And then they can start working with their students to help them become fluent in those areas too. But it's absolutely important for teachers to help students become literate in the literacies that they're using today and the tools that they're using today. Well, so I guess the thing is, it's the teacher's fault if the students are not savvy in that area. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I'm not even sure, for me, it relates to the teachers not being savvy in the use of those technologies. But let's say students are doing a lot of texting and a lot of social media work. They're also turning in writing to their teachers. And if the teachers aren't then teaching them to write well within the context of those assignments, it feels to me that blaming the technology for poor writing is is sort of a red herring. Right? I mean, uh, why would the, why would there be any decrease in your ability to actually teach students well just because they're also texting? Yeah, I I think uh, that the reason that happens goes to something I mentioned earlier. A to me, a teacher is not authentic audience. And so I think when a student really has an authentic audience to write for, like they do when they're using social media and texting, then they understand how to write appropriately in that medium. But when you're just handing in a paper to a teacher, that's not a real audience. So what I recommend teachers do is help students find an authentic uh, forum for their work. And then if they do that, and I'll say a little bit more about what I mean in a moment, but the students then start to develop their own mentors. And so what I mean by that is if we're helping students discover their passions, um, they can connect with maybe magazines or writers or bloggers who are writing about those passions and ask to, um, well, I would start by just having them comment if possible, on the blogs or the articles, and then they're reading that style of writing, and then they're reading what a comment should look like, and they should be taught how you appropriately comment, and then maybe you move to having them write a guest post, but that blogger or author or publisher of the magazine sort of becomes their writing mentor to help them write in ways for authentic audiences. But I think that it would be confusing if a teacher says, all right, now you're handing it in to me. And they can't really envision where that writing really fits in because their experience with writing is not, you know, to hand it into a teacher. So I don't see them making a connection unless they are writing for real. 
Okay, in the interest of time, let's keep moving here because now I want to get really out of the box. And we've gotten some good questions that have come in. I will get to those. I've I've copied them down and uh, we'll open it up. But I sort of really quickly want to go through. Uh, you kind of make the case in the Teenager's Guide to Opting Out and the Working Home Educator's Guide to Success. You and your co-authors, including uh, Lorette Lynn. The what's your blog? She's at unpluggedmom.com. Okay, so you 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 make the case that, uh, that that there are ways of looking at education, sort of a la gato, that children are actually being hurt by the school system, and that there's a difference between what we want, what we've been trained to want, and that schools are not really they're intended to foster intellectual growth, but to create workers to support the rise of industry. So this is definitely kind of well out of the box. What occurs to me is there are a lot of really passionate, well-intended, oftentimes successful educators who wouldn't describe education that way. So how do you balance kind of this extreme uh, message of school is not what we think it is with the really good intentions and output of certain educators? So what I'm finding, even with um, the educators that I, I respect and love and know they're doing great things, they are saying their hands are, you know, and this isn't how it's always been, but this is why I'm getting frustrated now with the system, that their hands are being tied um, and they're not able to teach in the ways that they know are best for children. If I look at my own setting where I'm in New York and in the state we have so many regions and now there's they believe that the way to get students more prepared is by giving them more tests, making more requirements, um, giving less freedom. And with the Common Core standards, I don't know how familiar people are with them, but they are uh, really limiting what the options are for students. They're pushing all students down the same narrow pipeline and also saying that 100% of all students should also be prepared on academic college track as well. So I'm saying this to talk to the point that in many cases, even our most well-intentioned educators' hands are tied. And that's also why they're getting frustrated with these evaluation systems, because the schools are in, they're, they're being threatened with being closed down if the students don't perform well on high-stakes tests and the teachers are uh, threatened with even losing their jobs. So even those great teachers aren't able to do this work. That's one thing. But the other thing is that they're just in a system that is often not designed for success because it doesn't make sense to have this same standardized curriculum for every single student and to move all students through school um, by date of manufacture. And we don't, you know, we used to need to go to a place to learn, but school and learning doesn't need to be tied to this place anymore. And we're moving incredibly slowly with these new realities that are in place. So I think some of that slow move is just the cultural negotiation and change. But I think you're also making the case that some of the slow move is because what we assume were benign or benevolent interests for the creation of education weren't always benevolent or benign. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Um, I guess what you're, you're, I'm also just thinking of the fact that all of these things that we just assume are givens that every student needs 
are really not necessary for every student. And I talk often about the fact that, you know, I took every class I was supposed to take. I graduated with honors. Um, I graduated very quickly from high school and college, both at the top of my class. I was 19 when I was done. And people I mean, push back on this, but the reality is I didn't learn anything because I am not like that small percentage of people who learns from memorizing and regurgitating. So for me, taking these subjects like history, um, social studies, math, those are all a waste of time. I've never used algebra or geometry that I've learned in my real life, nor have I been able to apply really anything I learned because I don't remember any of it. So I, I'm actually saying we need to seriously rethink how students are spending their days. It feels to me like it might be well described as a Venn diagram. There's sort of traditional conforming schooling. There's alternative, passionate, uh, student-driven education. And they do intersect. There are schools that do a good job. There are people who are doing a good job. It's helpful to draw the contrast, but it doesn't mean that it's always black or white. Yeah, well, I guess you, may, you bring up a good point that I didn't even touch on, which is that there are many schools that are doing a great job with many educators who are doing this work wonderfully outside of the public school sector. Because right now, tax dollars are tied to high stakes tasks. And so much of the curriculum has now become consumed with preparing students for the test that if you're in a public school, it's nearly impossible to get outside of that. But once we move outside of the public school setting to non-public schools, we're seeing amazing models and really wonderful things going on. And one of the things that I want to push heavily for is untethering public school funding to high-stakes tasks. And once we untether the funds from the high-stakes tasks, then public schools can start engaging in meaningful work that I think would be doing what is best for children and educators would be able to really shine because now many educators in public schools are feeling like their hands are tied from doing what's right for kids. Okay, so uh, of course nine minutes to go in the show and way more to talk about than we can. But uh, let's uh, look at some of the questions that have come in. Um, one question was, what do you think of results-driven training programs like Teach for America and the New Teacher Project? I want to be an innovative educator, but how to work within the system, how to find good training? Well, I'm not sure what results-driven uh, what that thing was that Teach for America has. I don't know what that means. Uh, I'm trying to remember who asked the question. If you want to put it back in, that would be great, or just let us know your interpretation of that. My interpretation would be that they're in support of high-stakes testing, that they get measured and they measure their own success based on the, the traditional measures we're using now. Okay, so that's what I thought it might be referring to. So I think that we need to redefine what results are. Um, the problem with such assessments is that the, one of the least, um, one of the factors that contributes least to how students will do on a test is teachers. One of the, the factors that has the most influence is parental involvement, then that's followed by zip code, um, and then socioeconomic status, and then just the aptitude that the child has. And, Far down there is the teacher. So I think that um, 
and, and also just the idea that everyone is supposed to develop at the same time at the same rate doesn't make sense at all. So what I'm saying is that teachers in this model now are feeling incredibly frustrated and I've talked to many teachers who are leaving the public school system as a result because they feel like their hands are tied. It's very difficult. I mean, what some people are doing is just teaching subjects if they are, are available, like art, or just not the core subject so that they can at least get some creativity, but I don't know that that's the answer. Gordon wanted to know if flipped cl the flipped classroom fad is not just homework by another name. Well, I... I think you might know, Steve, I don't know, but I was, I had, I was featured in a USA Today article about the flipped classroom and I wrote um, a post a month or so ago, uh, reasons why I'm not flipping over the flipped classroom, because I don't believe in homework. So the flipped classroom is just having you watch the lecture at home, which I think might be better than the way we traditionally do homework. But what I would advocate for instead is that there is more time for independence in the student's day. And they could use time during the day to watch the lectures or pursue their passions or whatnot. But I don't believe we should be taking kids' time away in the evening for homework. But I do believe we should give kids more time for independent um, thinking, learning, socializing, whatever they want during the school day. Uh, Bruce wanted to know if there are peer-reviewed journals for young scholars. That, I don't know. But I think it would be a great question to tweet. Um, I don't know the answer to that, though. The answer would be, uh, let's create it. Uh, Royce wants to know, did you have good mentors or are you a pioneer? I don't mean to offend anyone from my youth, but I didn't have good mentors uh, in my school years, meaning K to 12 or college. Um, in the past maybe five years, I've had amazing mentors through my personal learning network. And I think that this is another area where schools have a huge fail, is not helping students develop their personal learning network. But through that, I have connected with many, many wonderful mentors that I've learned more from than um, ever before. And the importance of personal learning networks is I'm finding my mentors and I'm responsible for my mentors, as opposed to in K-12 or college, people just kind of randomly found these mentors by chance if they were lucky. And I wasn't one of the lucky ones. But social media makes it so easy for us to seek out these amazing mentors that we can connect with and learn from. So I have had wonderful mentors as an adult. Um, but I did not as a young person. Okay, uh, Roy, uh, Thomas wanted to know, well, actually this was a comment more than anything else, and a very clever one. How about mandatory testing for school board members and administrators? Yeah, I, I love that comment. I don't know if people have seen this article that was sent to me by about a dozen people, but a school board member took a standardized test and he did very poorly on it. Um, and he writes about the fact that uh, he's a business owner, the tests, I mean, I think that they would all do poorly on it. I know a colleague of mine, her husband is a historian, um, 
he does that for a living, and he says everything on the history of regions is not relevant to the work of historians. So I think it'd be great to have all of these people take the standardized tests that they're forcing upon kids, but I mean, the reality is I don't think anyone should be taking these tests, but if we're going to force the kids to do it, we should force everyone to do it, I guess. It would be a twist on the Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader TV show, right? So we assume that that means the adults are dumb. But what it really means is that there's a lot of information you learn as a fifth grader that you have forgotten by the time you're an adult that really doesn't matter to what you do. Right. And I think a better question, I mean, I love his question. It's a great question. But instead of that, what would be more telling is having people who are successful in these different professions take these tests. And when we do that, we find, you know, the historian doesn't do well in the history regions. And I write professionally, I'm sure I wouldn't do great on the English regions. And I think that that's the real test of it, is talking to the real experts in the field and getting feedback from them. But the thing I always say is kids shouldn't be tested. There shouldn't be tests in school. And the reason I don't believe there should be tests in school is because tests have little to no place in life. My last test was 15 years ago. And yes, you could say, you know, sometimes there's a test. But sure, okay, maybe a kid takes a test once every five years or something. It should, it should mirror real life. And in real life, we don't have tests like this. And in school life, we shouldn't have that either. So Lisa, we are uh, at the close. Uh, before uh, I remind people of our upcoming interviews, uh, I want to thank you. I'm going to clap for you here. I'm using the applause symbol. And uh, is there anybody you would want to point us to? I mean, you've talked about uh, John Holt and John Taylor Gatto and Vygotsky. Um, who is not getting the attention that they deserve right now? And who, who should I be bringing on the show? Oh, wow. Okay, that's a great question. Well, I mean, as you know, because I actually did a show with you on the topic, but I've learned so much from um, the unschooling world um, and the home educating world. And I think, have you had Peter Gray on the show? I have not. I don't even know the name. Okay. He is someone that I am really loving right now. Um, and he Unlike uh, Holt or Illich or some of these others, he happens to be alive, <laughs> so that is very helpful. He is a he's a, a psychologist and writer for Psychology Today, and he's done amazing research that uh, debunks many myths that we have about learning, and such as that you don't need to go to school to learn to read, you don't need to go to school to learn to write. Um, that students would do better in math if we waited until they were older to start teaching it. So, and he's done amazing research on this. So I think Peter Gray, Psychology Today, his blog is called Freedom to Learn. He would be uh, someone I would suggest. And I mentioned her a couple times uh, since we've been talking, which is Lorette Lynn, uh, who has the Unplugged Mom. Uh, podcast and blog, and she's doing some really interesting work about learning without school as well. Terrific. In fact, I may call on you to make introductions for both of sure. them. Okay, uh, that was just terrific. What a lot of fun. Thank you for coming on the show tonight. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Coming up next week, David Maxfield should be uh, quite a contrast 
very different subject matter. Um, the EduBlog Award Show on Wednesday, the 14th, the Blue Valley School Caps Program on the 15th. Again, that should be very much in line with what Lisa's talked about. And then a break until the beginning of January. Thanks to Lisa Nielsen. Thanks to you for attending. If you're listening to the recording, thanks for taking the time. Take care, everybody.